Hi there and welcome to a special episode of Leading with James Ashton. Since we began this podcast in April, I've interviewed dozens of leaders from the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond. Leaders in education, technology, property, fashion, conservation, accountancy, healthcare, science, sport and advertising have shared their greatest challenge, their worst mishap, how they motivate thousands of staff or volunteers and their journey to the top. This episode is a compilation of their and our best bits, the nuggets of information that really reveal what it is to lead in the 21st century. Leading is supported by Saxton Bamfield, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. Saxbam have more than 30 years of experience in placing talented and innovative individuals into a huge variety of organisations and groups. Find out more about their services at saxbam.com. Let's start at the Royal Albert Hall. Here's the Chief Executive, Craig Hassel, talking about taking forward the venue's legacy as it nears its 150th birthday. He's in conversation with me and John Vincent, the co-founder and Chief Executive of Leon, the healthy fast food chain. There's so much, only so much you can change with the Albert Hall. It, it's been there for almost 150 years. There's this dual purpose, protect the hall, promote arts and science. So you have to put your modern spin on that brief, if you like. It's funny you say that. There's actually quite a lot you can change. The great thing with Royal Albert Hall is it's founded on the, a vision from Prince Albert, who was a very clever guy. There's a German who came to live in England, married Queen Victoria. He was a visionary fellow. He had this whole idea to democratise learning and arts and mm. science and entertainment and, and all sorts of things, which is why he built the V&A and the Natural History Museum and Imperial College mm. and, and the Royal Albert Hall. So now what I want to do is, is go back to the vision and say, what, what was Albert doing? Why did he yeah. want to build this place? And what was it about? And so making the Royal Albert Hall more accessible, more open, more available to everyone is something that I'm really keen to mm. do and Albert would love it. He'd be totally on board for it. Mm. You've channeled Prince Albert channeled already. Albert. He's on already. my shoulder. <laughs> He's here in the room now. You've got his, uh, <laughs> his body wear. John, <laughs> John, what about you? Because you've not got 150 years of heritage, you have got 15, but there's always <laughs> been good. an element of mission, I think. I mean, you, yeah. you, you never set up Leon just to sell food, did you? Uh, no. So what did you set it up for? Um, it turns out... It, it was, and this is maybe a grand way of saying it, but it was is to help humankind on their fundamental journey towards wholeness. I'm not sure I quite knew that at the time, but I've, worked, <laughs> I've kind of subsequently worked it out, um, which I guess, you know, to help people connect with themselves, each other and the planet was basically why um, why uh, why we did it. And I, subsequent, in subsequent reading, uh, it turns out that that is what most philosophies and most religions think is man's fundamental or humankind's fundamental journey. So oh, I didn't know I was quite doing that, but I think that's vaguely what we're doing. It sounds a bit grand, doesn't no, it? It sounds but, a bit um, Prince Albert, actually. Yes, it's great. It's, yeah, I, I, love I it. think that I need to find out more about Prince Albert. I'm sorry that I didn't know that history. Um, so, yes, I'm, we're in the Albert tradition, I think. I think at least by the end of this recording, there should be the makings of a Leon within the Albert Hall. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> we should talk. Thinking. John. Yes. And, yes. and John, how are you doing on that mission then? Because it is quite a challenge. You're growing at an incredible rate. I think we're growing. Yeah. But I, I think possibly we've had, an, in observable terms, an impact on what others are doing as well. So I, I often say that actually our biggest, Leon's biggest impact is in changing McDonald's. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the, if I think about you know some of the sustainable initiatives, some of the desire to make food 
a little bit better for you, create environments that maybe connect people a bit more. I think we've had something of an impact on mm-hmm. others. Uh, and, you know, there was a guy called Denny Henneken who ran McDonald's Europe, was the architect of the turnaround here. He worked with Steve Easterbrook, who worked for him in the UK, who's now the global person. Mm. And Denny, Denny said, anything you see in, in McDonald's today, I'm sure this isn't entirely true, but it's a lovely exaggeration. He said, everything you see in McDonald's today we're trying to change is because we stood in front of Carnaby Street and we said, this is what good fast food should mm. be. Here's a chat on managing change in leadership. First up, it's Chris Hurst with a readout on the advertising and marketing industries and the new skills they need to bring in. He's head of the Havas Creative Network, which has 8,500 staff around the world and counts Nestle, IBM and Huawei among its clients. Chris is followed by Claire Gilmartin. She's chief executive of the online ticketing app Trainline, which sells £3 billion worth of train and coach tickets every year across 45 markets. Claire talks about disruption and diversity and the importance of her mentor, the publishing boss, Gail Reebuck. All leadership is about managing change, effectively. I mean, they're all businesses. People talk about businesses existing in three phases, going up, going along, or going down. I don't think the middle phase exists. You're either going forwards or you're going backwards. And what's advertising and marketing doing at the moment? Well, the good business is going forwards and the bad business is going backwards. The client spend on marketing, is the broadest sense, is actually going up. What's changing is how that spend is being spread across the various channels. Obviously, the big story being the huge growth and the rapid growth and the continued growth in most markets of digital. So uh, there is very much still a big and important market amongst client organizations for what you might call marketing services. But what we have to do is we have to adjust our businesses and the way we behave and the things we sell in order to be able to deliver that consultancy service to new channels. So what does that shift meant for Havas? That shift for Havas has meant that we've had to change. Well, I think some things change and some things stay the same in truth. I think we have to learn some new skills. So for example, I mean, digital marketing virtually didn't exist. It didn't exist 10 years ago and it really was very, very, very different even five years ago. So you have to learn new skills, etc. But I think what is as important, people like talking about the thing that's changing. But for our business, as I look at all of our businesses around the world, the things that differentiate the ones that are doing well from the ones that aren't, the businesses that are doing well from the ones that aren't, the differentiator, the difference is the quality of the leadership teams. Mm. I mean, it really is as simple as that. Where we have strong leadership teams, effective leadership teams, our businesses by and large, they do well. I mean, it doesn't matter what the client is, it doesn't matter what the campaign is, it's actually down to the, the, the people who are leading the teams on the ground. Uh, well, the leadership teams, I mean, the way our businesses grow is we grow our client base. So a key thing that the leadership teams have to do is they have to be able to effectively, you know, pitch and win more clients. Yeah. And that is a that is an enduring truth of our business. So in that sense, it's the same. And what levers have they got to pull? There's only two. It, it's... Uh, essentially particularly in creative agencies mm. particularly it's essentially talent and culture and that's okay. always been true okay claire you know plenty about change but i suppose that the thing with trainline is that you very much are the disruptor if you like so what does that make your biggest challenge you're right we are disrupting we're we're bringing an industry that essentially was always offline into the online world and, and so i guess you could say we're disrupting to an extent I think the single biggest thing, the single biggest learning for me in terms of leading through that level of disruption and change has been the importance of a solid purpose and a North Star. So inevitably, when you try to disrupt and when you take the risky path of accelerated growth, there are going to be ups and downs. And so what I found has been very important is the sound purpose, which stays constant. 
for our business, it's championing a much greener way of travelling, taking people out of cars, we hope, reducing congestion and taking people from short-haul flights into rail and coach. And that purpose holds true and is tremendously fortifying during the, the ups and the downs. And that's certainly been a key part of, I think, how I've led the business over the last few years. Do you think it's easier for you as a female leader to you know, say we must diversify or do you think male leaders will do that just as well? I don't think it's any easier for me. I think I believe very deeply that a diverse team can be harder to form and gel together because Mm. they don't have oftentimes the starting natural social bonds that a more homogenous team might have. But absolutely in the medium to long run, a diverse team makes sure we don't have blind spots Mm. A diverse team thinks through all the possible solutions Mm. and ultimately we get to better outcomes. We must talk about the Baroness, Gail Reebok. Yes. Oh no, she's a dame. Yes. Uh, As I said, I've I've had a a few mentors along the way who've been hugely helpful and I think the the bottom line is talking to people who've been down the road ahead of you. Just generally, I think, very wise advice. I met Gail towards the end of my tenure at eBay And I probably had, much like you spoke about a minute ago, I probably, after close to 10 years in one company, I probably had a bit of fear about shaking it all up uh, and going elsewhere. And she's very straight talking and she just told me to get on with it uh, and move. I took my role at Trainline as the CEO when the mission was to IPO the business pretty much as soon as I was in the door and I was five months pregnant. Um, And so I remember saying to Gail, you know, if I do this, I will have to take, I don't know, three or four weeks maternity leave and I'll be in the middle of an IPO process. And she said, oh, for goodness sake, when I had kids, there was no maternity leave. And she was just tremendously helpful. It sort of grounded me and it it normalised, I think, what I was doing. And, you know, that ended up being one of the best, if not the best, career decisions I've ever made. And I remember that very well because you were heading towards, still heading into... IPO before KKR came and did the private equity deal. And uh, you did the interview in the Sunday Times and there's a big photo of you. And you, you're shaking your head, but it, it was a real, I just thought it was a real moment. You know, there was a, you know, it was a good moment. There was a woman obviously pregnant in this business interview slot in the Sunday Times. And that kind of said, well, well show that what Gayla said uh, had taken effect and that you can do anything if you, if you put your mind to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've always been a bit feisty and bloody minded about the notion that unquestionably we need more women in leadership roles, be it politics or business, balanced teams deliver better outcomes. So I've always felt as part of this generation, I have to do my bit. As it happened, I don't think I choreographed it this way, but doing my bit ended up being leading an IPO when I was pregnant. But I twisted it on its head, or at least in my own head, I said, you know, these investors probably see a bunch of similar people over the course of a week and they will absolutely remember Trainline because I'm the only one who was eight months pregnant. <laughs> and I made a joke out of it. What about managing growth? Here's Geeta Nanda with her take on the subject. Geeta is Chief Executive of Metropolitan Thames Valley, one of the UK's largest housing associations that is landlord to 57,000 homes. Before her, we hear from Mark Livingston, who knows a thing or two about growing startups. He's chief executive of Pharmacy to You, the prescription delivery company that dispatches 1.2 million medicines to patients every month. He was also involved in the snacks by mail firm Grays and the DVD delivery startup Lovefilm. 
Yeah, growth is a really tricky thing. I've, I've had the good fortune to go through it four or five times now in other ventures that I've set up and run. Patience, which isn't a natural attribute of mine, is something that you have to learn and adapt to. And obviously what we do is is an exceptionally important thing. We can't afford for wheels to fall off with drug programs because they're a little bit more important than you know what film you're going to watch next or whether or not you're going to get your snack food through the post, which are other businesses I've been involved with. So, you know, we are exceptionally diligent in our clinical excellence and we will control and rein back growth whenever or if ever we felt that we were unable to assure the 99.991% clinical accuracy that we currently have. Yeah, I was going to come on to some of those other ventures later, Mark, because it does seem that during your career you have kept Royal Mail in business. <laughs> I think I'm the only one, yeah. They need, need a few more Mark Livingstons and Maybe. share prices. Yeah, I wish they up. would reflect that, yeah. yeah. Gita, people might not associate it with an organisation like yours, a housing association, but but there's growth as well, isn't there? There, You're adding, I think in the last year, you added 1,000 new homes and, and typically you look to add 2,000. Yeah, so I think housing associations are one of the biggest sort of providers of new homes in the country. And actually listening to Mark around, you know, that growth trajectory that you have. I mean, it's interesting because we're kind of long, long-term businesses, you know, so we've sort of been around since the sort of 50s, you know, 60s. Yeah. And through those periods, through those different decades, you have real differences in terms of your growth and sometimes you know you're the darling of government you get money thrown at you sometimes there's nothing sometimes you're over the years we've become much more commercial so it's from our borrowings and our asset base that's grown etc so you know we really recognize that sort of explanation you've mm. just given that you've got to be able to catch up with your growth when you yeah. build a home it's not just building that home it's got to make sure you've got the quality then you've got to get the management service right you've got to repair all those homes so you know we always try and make sure that we're providing our purpose really is to to address homelessness and to make sure that we're mm. providing you know homes for the nation but we've got to make sure that whatever we build we can manage the, the consequential elements of what comes next so where are you on the darling chart at the moment with government <laughs> well i think at the moment uh, we're seen as organizations and a sector that is reliable you know we always do deliver always deliver the numbers that we've been set mm. And we outperform, you know, I think the government need us and the people of you know, people need us to provide those mm. those affordable homes. And to divert into politics, but not for long, uh, what your take on the housing crisis? You say, you've definitely said there that the housing associations are doing their bit. So the implication is that someone somewhere else isn't. We're still short. And going into election time, the politicians always promise we can build this huge number. And it, it was very difficult to, to make these numbers stick, I think, when they're actually in government. Local authorities are doing more at the moment. But what they can do is the numbers that are required mean that you need to have a whole host of different providers that are sort of aiming for those numbers. So it's really important that local authorities are building again. I think that's great. They've got some support to do that, but they've been out of the game for a long time and it's very difficult. You can't just suddenly gain all the skills and expertise to be able to sort of deliver huge numbers if you've not been doing it for a long time. Housing associations have been growing and producing a lot of homes. We could do more. We could do more if we have more money. But it's not just about the number of homes built, but it's the type of home that's built and mm. how affordable it is. And the more affordable the home is, i.e. if it's rented homes and they're at a, a, a lower social rent, the more subsidy needs to go into that. Mm. And that's either that's grant or it's land or, you know, the subsidy has to come from somewhere. So it's fantastic. People are putting housing at the top of the agenda and it's mm. fantastic that the numbers are big but the money needs to follow. Mark, i come back to you. 350 or so staff uh, in Leeds. What do they get when you go into the office? What's your style? 
I would like to think we've built a real meritocracy. I would like to think my style is pretty unbureaucratic, pretty approachable. I say I would like to think because, of course, everyone has a perception of how they're judged. And sometimes, quite often, you can be in for a bit of a nasty surprise when you actually ask people honestly to kind of hold up the mirror to you. But I, I would like to think that it's the kind of characteristics that I've described. Hopefully, you know, exuberant, excited, demanding are kind of things that I... I would like to think are part of our culture and a real pride in, as I say, just making a difference and believing we're doing things differently to the benefit of both the NHS and the consumer. Do you get that from doing it so many times with different launches? I guess the the investors, because you're in that startup environment, rather than, you know, the whole range of stock market investors choosing you or backing you as the CEO, you have to really get these big investors who commit from their funds on side. They want, they want someone reliable, if you like, who's done it before, who's going to keep the show on the road. Yeah, you've got this horrible chicken and egg, which is... You know, they want new talent to come and make a return on their investment and run and build successful businesses. But equally, there is no substitute for having done it before, you know, good, bad or ugly. What if you are the organisation you lead, at least to begin with? Amanda Wakeley told us all about starting up as a clothing designer that would go on to dress the late Princess of Wales, Beyonce and Michelle Obama. She was joined by Dame Alison Nimmo to talk about creativity and finding a work-life balance. Dame Alison was until recently Chief Executive of the Crown Estate and formerly Design Director for the Olympic Delivery Authority. Amanda, I would love to ask you what attracted you to the role, but I guess, you know, you are, you are it, the role is you, if you like. It absolutely is. And I came back from living and working in America in the late 80s, and I couldn't find the clothes that I loved over in America. It was sort of before the time that the big American designers had made their way over here. And I just thought in a very simplistic, youthful way, well, if I want it, other people will want it. So I started in a tiny, tiny design studio in the back end of Chelsea and created a very small collection of pieces that I really loved and wanted to share with other people. And how does it feel to have you know, you're a leader of an organisation, but you also have your name over the door. So it's always, always going to be very personal. Very personal. And if ever I, or whenever I correct people or pull them up for being sloppy or not working to, to my standards, I, I always remind them that it's my name above the door and my reputation. And so, yes, the devil's in the detail. And um, that, that, they have to be my ambassadors too. So there's no comeback from that, is there? It's my name above the door. So that's, yeah. Um, and I'm interested in how you balance up. I mean, at the moment you are, well, you are always founder of Amanda Wakeley, but you're also creative director. And I guess at the time, times over the years, you've had, um, you know, other titles associated. How do you divide a lot up in your mind? How do you get your priorities right? Constantly juggling, you know, it's what women do well, isn't it? <laughs> multitasking. <laughs> multitasking. Yes, you're constantly multitasking. For me, and I'm interested to know you, Alison, because I know you're a, a keen triathlete, aren't you? <laughs> and for me, actually, that standing back and making time for fitness and or climbing a mountain to get that fresh air and to get some perspective is fundamental. I also really believe fit bodies fit mind. 
Well, Alison, you've always you've always done sport. I think I remember when I first interviewed you, you combined a site visit with a, with a triathlon because you'd just been around Great Windsor Park. But <laughs> that was bad diary planning. <laughs> <laughs> but you fit it. You fitted both that sides in. Really, very, very good diary planning, <laughs> multitasking to the extreme. I agree with what Amanda said that because during the Olympics, I got very, very busy and worked ridiculous hours to the point where I I was about to fall over really, and I just thought this is complete madness and I need to get a balance back into my life. I used to love sport and I used to do running and swimming and cycling and all of that stuff and I just thought this is crazy especially the irony of working on the Olympics and not having any time to do any sport and I just started doing it again and I've I've just made it a promise to myself now as part of what as Amanda said just getting a balance in your life and you know I will say to people you can't you can't run a marathon in the red zone you know mm. you've got to pace yourself and perspective and having the right people around you and friends and investing time in that is is you know is just as important and making you a good leader actually mm. i mean because happy leaders are good leaders mm. amanda with seven boutiques around largely around london and into bristol and you know leeds and so on you must be pleased to hear anyone who's investing in in high quality retail space absolutely i mean i think it's an incredibly challenging time in the retail world the bricks and mortar retail world because so much is going online and going away from the city centres and, and all of that. So um, it's music to my ears because retail now has to be about so much more than just beautiful product and good service. It's it's about, you know, what more are you giving to your customer? Open up, make, make your theatre, whatever that theatre is. For me, it's very much a sense of home and sharing mm-hmm. is really fundamental to retail now. People say in, in luxury, you're only, you can only be as good as your last collection, perhaps, but you also have to have, I guess, that long-term relationship with people. Yes, absolutely. And so we work on really extended timelines. For example, we're just finishing up the design of winter 20, 2020, which is just crazy. And then we have to go straight into spring 21 and have that all Mm. sketched before Christmas, which is, you know, but by the same token, over the last few years, we've divided the collection into being the the fashion collection and then also offering your real key signature wardrobe staples. So your perfect pant, whether you're a flare girl or a wide leg girl or a peg pant girl, great white shirts, beautiful cashmere staples that you can always get. They never go on sale. You're you're saying, I'm really proud of these pieces. They're perfect wardrobe staples or perfect in my mind. And that I'm respecting my customer by saying, I don't put these on sale. These these are beautiful pieces that form the foundation of your wardrobe. So where do you get all that creativity and inspiration from? Oh, actually, life. And I am a woman designing for women. And what do I need? What makes me feel good? Because I always think of clothes as a very soft armor. And, <laughs> you know, they they actually talk about who we are. Mm-hmm. And they might talk about who we are on that day or for that event. And that might be a, a different person. I'm, I'm a huge believer in dressing for your mood. What do you, how do you need to feel today? Do I need to feel a little bit more empowered at the school gates? Yes, actually, a four-ply cashmere sweater will make me feel (laughs) quite special. Or that perfectly cut dress will give me just 
put my shoulders back, make me feel stronger in the boardroom or in that interview or that important meeting. And you're still very hands-on in that creative process. I am, yes. Yeah. I think I do always think that you have to have, I'm sure you agree, a complete passion for what you do. Otherwise, we've Absolutely. got better things to do with life. Yeah. And so that's my, if you want to call it my indulgence, but actually I think it's essential because I'm A, living the lifestyle, being that it's so I know what I need and how I want to feel and that informs a lot of my design decisions. And what about getting to the top? Mentors can help. Here is Dame Janet Beer talking about someone who helped her on her way at Manchester Metropolitan University where she became the pro vice-chancellor, later moving on to Oxford Brooks and then becoming vice-chancellor of the University of Liverpool. First of all, here's Leonore Shepich. She's the chief executive of Montessori St. Nicholas, talking about the lack of female role models uh, in the city when she was embarking on her career and how Margaret Thatcher came in handy as she looked around for ways to progress. And to talk a little about mentorship, either who's mentored you or who who you are mentoring so you've talked i mean margaret thatcher wasn't a direct mentor i guess no. <laughs> she was someone you could see well she was the only woman i could see at the time in a senior role it mm. was it was you know it was, that's terrifying it, well it was yes. the, uh, it was genuinely the only and mm. and you know certainly you know going into the city there was you know the women yeah. were the you know were the secretaries or mm. you know the typist pool or something yeah. there was there was nobody around that you could say oh look you know here's here's mm. a senior woman you know for that reason i've had one female mentor who was the ceo of the first charity i went into so, so basically, when I when I came back from Croatia, which is where I ended up working, and I wanted to get into the charity sector, and the only job going was a, as a receptionist, and so I applied for it. And the CEO, who was female, who'd actually been a head teacher of a school, said to me, "Why do you want this job? You know, you're so overqualified." I said, "Well, I really want to work for a charity." And to give her her due, she she took me on, and and she was trying to change the charity around, and and because I'd done it, I sort of you know, in my spare time, wrote her a plan and then went to see her and said, this is how I think you could do it and I can help you. And again, she she was, you know, she was open-minded enough to not go, oh, who are you? You're the receptionist. What are you talking about? Mm. She actually read it. She called me in and she said, yeah, this sounds very good. And I said, well, look, I'll implement it for you. Pay me what you're currently paying me. And then in six mm. months, we've, we've changed things, then we can talk. And she really was the first person that kind of said, yeah, I believe in you. I'm going to help mm. you and I'm going to listen to you, which I think is really important. Mm. So she was great. I've had coaches and mentors throughout my career for short periods of time, which, you know, I'm very grateful to them. I do mentor people. I do mentoring with the Sherry Blair Foundation. So I mentor young female entrepreneurs mm. in Africa, mostly it's two, two mentees I have is in, are in Africa. But I also mentor um, other CEOs of smaller mm. charities um, who are starting out to help them. Janet, who helped you along the way? Uh, well, a, a lot of people, but, you know, standout was, um, uh, unlike you, there, there were senior women in, in universities, although not very mm. many. And my... The big boss at MMU, Dame Sandra Burslem, was an incredible mm -hmm. force for change and good in my life, and I'm undyingly grateful to her. So she, I was a head of department, she kind of made all kinds of things possible for me, you know, would just let me know about opportunities. She was a big staff development fan as well, and so, you know, when I was a PVC dean, she 
suggested I go on the senior women leadership course at Harvard, which is an intensive week-long mm. course, but absolutely life-changing. She also put me forward for the top management program mm. and, you know, supported, you know, when I would, I would say, do you think I ought to apply for this, you know, board membership or that role in a new HE body or something? She absolutely always behind me and, you know, incredibly positive and enabling. So she was brilliant. And did you pick up some skills from her as well about I how she, so. because if it's been, if it's been, tough for your generation to some extent for her it must have been oh i mean she had the most amazing career and the adversity that she came back from is a a whole novel but just suffice it to say that um when she was newborn her father was working in shanghai and she spent the first five years of her life in a japanese prisoner of war camp Mm. wow so Mm. anyway she's a she's an amazing person but i have tried always to live by the words of Madeleine Albright. There's a special place in hell mm. reserved for women who don't help other women. Absolutely. Mm. And um, I work to help others to, mm. to develop. Let's go back to the arts world. Here's Stuart Murphy on his first impressions on becoming chief executive of English National Opera after a career in TV at the BBC and Sky. Stuart, I'll start with you. Um, 18 months into English National Opera, what's the biggest challenge for you coming into that job? So um, the narrative around English National Opera had been negative for years. And um, so it's partly trying to create a new narrative, which initially had to be fictional, not based on anything, just so that people internally could believe that that a rosier future was possible. Um, Lots of people felt downtrodden. Lots of people talked about failure. They were really risk averse, which is really difficult in an artistic environment where there's no science and no clear definition of what's a success or not and so so yeah the toughest thing was trying to um, get everyone to turn in in an opposite direction and instead of them always looking at the negative or worrying or just staying still was to try and get a bit of movement in the system because this was a grand old organization everyone had heard of it everyone's seen the the coliseum in 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 the west end but it had been in special measures financial measures for a while and a bit as you say a bit risk averse yeah i mean actually it was put on the kind of naughty step from the arts council about eight years ago but came off the naughty step about four years ago so financially it's been in a really safe and solid position for four years reserves have been growing they're about six million now which is kind of unheard of for an arts institution this year we've posted the biggest profit in almost 10 years audience um, attendance is up 11 percent. so all the stats are there that speak to a rosier future but initially people just didn't believe it so it meant having to go around people saying look this is what a great organization can look like Mm. Um, we can have a canteen we can have feedback so you can be constantly growing Um, you can be proud of your job so when you see people at a party or speak to your kids you can feel good about yourself these things are possible And because ENO has 80% specialists and only 20% generalists... By that you mean the the craftspeople, the people who are building the sets and the people in the orchestra pit and so on. Exactly. That if someone's at ENO, it's very unlikely they're going to leave anytime soon because it's difficult to get a sets building job in another theatre. So instead of... Uh, getting rid of difficult people and hiring in fresh blood and using that as a way of getting people to be more positive. I've had no option but to kind of get down and dirty and in the weeds with people who've been there for 40 years saying, look, I know you said it was better in the 80s, but I was nine when we were in the 80s. It's kind of five prime ministers ago. Um, I know you've been here for 40 years and you don't believe that a mission and vision written down is a helpful thing or an all staff survey will come to anything, but just trust me on it. Mm. It can do. And and for 18 months, been saying that, working hard, 
and then having enough proof points that people have now started to say, actually, it can be a better place. And, and as I say, you know, the, the narrative was behind the reality. Um, and that's been really frustrating. Stuart, were there, do you think there was suspicion around you? This guy's coming in from the telly. Oh, Andy's from the north. I mean, these, these are both things that they hadn't necessarily seen people like you running the, the English National Opera before. Yeah, I think there's an element of that. I mean, you know, there's lots of examples. Um, Dennis Hawkes, I want to say, I'm sure I've got that wrong. Jeremy Isaacs, Tony Hall, they've all gone from TV to opera. So it's happened before okay. um, with success. I think probably there's an age thing. You know, there were lots of people, people usually go into opera when they're kind of in their 50s and 60s. And I'm, you know, a very young 47-year-old sitting here in my, in my Speedos. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if there's a... A northern thing, maybe there was. I mean, there's definitely a pace thing in the BBC and certainly in Sky, you pedal downhill. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of phrases we used to live by. And one of them was, if something works, how do you go faster and at scale? Now, in an arts institution that is good at ruminating, and one would argue excellence comes out of great rumination, but sometimes unfocused ruminating, Mm. you know, going at pace is sometimes seen as the opposite of great creative endeavour. I was trying to say, actually, there's enough examples nowadays, Apple being one of them, where brilliantly creative stuff can come out of a driven, focused culture. I mean, after the initial sort of month or so, when people realised I wasn't there to dismantle opera, and I love opera, and I was a good person, and, you know, looking out for the company and had people's backs, I think then lots of the heat calmed down a bit. But yeah, the first couple of weeks was tough. And I note that you've funded a Christmas party. I don't know whether that's just something nice that you did, or this would be a great way of bringing everyone together. Yeah, basically. I mean... I don't know if if you feel the same. I'm constantly trying to work out how you short-circuit your relationship either to the customer or to the staff. And a lot of the time, uh, as the chief exec, you are stuck in your office because people come to you for meetings and you it's respectful to go through people under you, immediately under you, and not to short-circuit it and go to people mm. at, at the start of their career in the company. So... I'm I'm constantly looking at ways where I can bypass that in a way that is respectful to the management team. And so Christmas parties seem the ideal thing. Management style is also something to consider. Here's Alice Bentink from Entrepreneur First on the leadership approach of big tech firms and Tony Blair, who she worked for early in her career. First of all, though, Becky Spate, the chief executive of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, on her management style. So what's your management style? Oh, God, that's such a awful question isn't it I, wasn't that in the notes <laughs> yeah but I, I did I the think about it but I, I'm strongly of the belief that you do have to bring different styles to bear in different occasions I think you have to be flexible and what's interesting is I think a lot of founder megalomaniacs aren't that flexible actually which may be why they succeed so I think that flexibility is important I think I think everyone has a default style and my default style is definitely I think to listen to people and to build up from that as opposed to impose and to do a lot of horizon scanning, do a lot more horizon scanning than I think than I think a lot of big organisations inherently do. So I lift your sights and look around what's outside. Absolutely. Happening that's, outside. That's where you spot yeah. the gaps and you get the context mm. right for what you're trying to do. And I think the danger in a big organisation is, as I was saying earlier, is that you just plough on. Because what is it? Can you give us a health check for, for bird life in the UK? I mean, the, the charity talks about about 40 million birds being lost in the last three or four decades. Yeah. But there are bright spots, I think, with examples of things that were very, very close to extinction. The white-tailed eagles had been lost and are now back and breeding in numbers in Scotland, for yes, example. So yes. there are, there's 
gloom, but there's also bright spots. Yes, but there's quite a lot of gloom, actually. Right. How, how <laughs> much gloom? A, how gloomy, <laughs> so, how gloomy so is it? There's a great report that comes out every three years called the State of Nature Report. About 70 organisations pool all their data and say what is going on. And that shows a trajectory of decline over the last 50 years. And that, you know, when you look just over the last 10 years, it's definitely not letting up. So once common birds like lapwing, which is so common that it had a common name, a peewit, that has dropped drastically in numbers. Um, maybe stabilising a little bit at the moment when it's not quite clear, but really low numbers now. And same with beautiful charismatic birds like the curlew, which has that lovely kind of lingering call that you hear in you know a, a kind of upland area you know that, that has had a crash in numbers as well turtle doves are right on the edge so you know there's there's a lot of bad news but but there are some spots of, of, of hope where we know if we get habitat management right if we kind of manage things like kind of predator impacts can be quite big and we can stabilize populations but I think when we looked at all the data in that report there are some big drivers that are shaping this overall context. Mm. And they are things like climate change, the impact of climate change on species, the impact of agricultural policy. So I won't say farming, because there are some farmers who do fantastic work for wildlife, but the imp overall impact of agricultural policy over the last 50 years has really changed our landscapes mm. and made them far less um, inviting to wildlife and far less habitable. Um, and things like, you know, other factors like pollution, for example, um, the use of pesticides, you know, they've all had an impact. But these big drivers are causing this big overall decline. And mm. that's what we need to turn around. So mm. I'm quite often, you know, looking at one of our reserves where, for example, we've got a very successful population of lapwing that's doing very well but that is not enough you know it will not be enough to have an arc of a population existing on a lovely little protected nature reserve we need to see lapwing back in our wider countryside if that population mm. is going to really stabilize and then thrive mm. so a lot of the work we do is about trying to achieve recovery for nature on a much wider scale mm. okay alice to seg from birds to tech the tech environment seems quite healthy you are a breeding ground there's a lot of breeding ground of, of tech but i'm interested in your view if on, on tech leadership because quite often the people who are leading the big tech companies don't seem to get it if you look at some of the big platforms it, there's a move fast and break things mentality and it's not our fault gov what, what do you what do you say to that i think tech is in a really interesting position at the moment where if you look at the very big tech companies they are suddenly have, having to respond to and behave like many of the companies they were trying to resist becoming. Um, and it's largely because of the, the kind of significance of their impact that they're having on, on the global population. And, and we've seen this with various elections, and I'm sure we don't want to get into, into that now. Yeah. But I think it, it is interesting because so much of building or so much of the culture around tech startups is about challenging the status quo, is about challenging existing leadership styles and, and existing leaders and, uh, and norms. And so I think it's really interesting to see the the current wave of the, the Googles and Facebooks and Amazons having to come to terms with what it means to be leaders, these founders becoming leaders of very big, culturally important companies. And I suppose the companies that we're working with are still relatively small. And I think in the early days, you have to be in the leadership mindset of a startup where you are constantly challenging the status quo, you are moving fast and breaking things. Mm. I think unfortunately, or, or fortunately, as, the, as companies grow, you do have to change your leadership style and, and take into account that you aren't a startup 
up anymore. You're actually part of the status quo. And I think that's a reasonably hard yes. shift of founders to, to make. Yeah. You either you either shift in style or, or actually you um, you change the boss. I've written a lot on, on academics, these university spin-outs. I mean, quite often the academic who, who came up with a brilliant idea at the lab bench is mm. definitely not the C- CEO material going forward, but some of them do insist on giving it a go. Well, I suppose that is something that we are actually keen to challenge. I think that, yes, the majority of academics probably aren't founders in the way that the majority of most people probably aren't yeah. founders. And I suppose we see our role at Entrepreneur First as finding the academics who are both academically very brilliant, but also CEO potential. You know, one of our internal values is that we believe in technologists. We believe that technologists can make amazing founders. And if you look in the US, you know, some of the biggest and greatest companies, whether it be Microsoft, whether it be Facebook, were created by people with technology backgrounds. Um, And I would love to see in the UK us really celebrating those with technology backgrounds and celebrating the fact that they can be leaders and founders. So that's something that we we see a lot of our Mm. most successful companies, the CEOs do have technical backgrounds. Prior to that, just to touch on, I mean, you, you worked in the Tony Blair office for a little while as an mm. intern, I think. And this was a period when he was transitioning out of number 10 from prime minister to whatever else. And mm. w- what your observations of that was very much a leader setting his own path, I guess, and doing something in a way that maybe previous PMs hadn't done. Yeah, I mean, again, it was a sort of a startup situation but this time with a, a world leader <laughs> and I think just being having the opportunity to be around uh, a very senior world leader and see how they live their life and how they behave and it was a, it was a wonderful learning experience and I think as you're sort of um, growing up if you like and as mm. you're uh, building and developing your own skills the more that you can either watch other leaders in action or as, as mm. you were saying get thrown into leadership positions yeah. that you probably aren't qualified for I think it is one of the best ways to learn mm. yeah Here's another interesting leadership pairing. Jack Buckner is chief executive of British Swimming, the elite aquatics governing body going for gold at the Olympics and other international competitions. He sat down with me and Peter Simpson, who you'll hear from first. Peter is chief executive of Anglian Water, the biggest water provider in England and Wales by geography, which serves more than 6 million customers every day. I think there's a lot of companies now who've kind of got that, and there's lots of really good examples of water companies doing, doing similar things in terms of that engagement. Um, and one of the really exciting things recently has been all companies committing to what's called a public interest commitment, but essentially a yep. series of joint goals which we all share. And the difference about those those things really is it's these are goals that we'll collaborate and innovate together on on achieving for the benefit of society and the environment. And and they include you know really ambitious targets around things like carbon and our commitment to achieve you know, net neutral carbon emissions by 2030 sure. which is pretty pretty bold stuff that's all of us together yep. so that's all of us on that journey i guess is, is one way of putting yes, it. yes and you've put that in so that's in your company constitution I, I wonder what that means for you on a day-to-day basis you know when you're you've got to consider the broader stakeholders every day in the office well as a business uh, you know that's how we have run our business for many many years mm. it's the way our, our shareholders want us to think it's the way the board wants us to think that's how we operate the most recent thing we did was to enshrine that triple bottom line really in our articles as, as a way of kind of making sure sure that whatever happens in terms of changes to ownership and, and the like in the future that it's really clear what's written on the tin about the organization mm-hmm. but it's, it hasn't you know, actually it's the way we operate there's still a big debate about you know who should own our water industry in your job as ceo does it really matter who the shareholder is uh, i think it does matter we're very lucky in anglian in that we've got long-term shareholders essentially pension funds who who are not in it for a quick quick buck they're there for the long term, they want to invest over a long term. They, they'd sack me quite quickly if I came in with something which was a short-term solution. So I think that aspect is quite important, actually. The nature of these sort of businesses means you really want shareholders who are going to be there 
commit to the long term because it's quite easy. If you're only popped in for a year or, or a shorter period as a big mm. shareholder, then actually there's a lot of decisions that could be suboptimal. Mm. Whereas, you know, we're planning, you know, big infrastructure over a quarter of a century uh, in many cases. So please don't nationalise will, will be the message. Well, I, I was there. I joined just before privatisation. At the other end, yes. I remember what it was like. And I would say definitely don't go back there. There's been a huge improvement in the amount of flooding that we see out there, the river, river water quality, interruption mm. supply, bathing water quality, any metric you want to look at. It's been a step change mm. since privatisation. So, and was just so much more efficient than we used to be back then. Mm. So I definitely wouldn't want to go backwards. And, and equally, I don't really see the reason for doing that, mm. given the cost that would be involved. Yeah. With the commitments that the industry's making for the future in terms of this public interest commitment stuff I talked about earlier, the level of ambition in a lot of that stuff, I think, is another reason why you'd say, well, why? I mean, you'll have seen the headlines recently, some criticism from Dustin Lance Black, Tom Daly's husband, about I think it really boiled down to how close the family should get to the mm. performer at the times that they're in they're in the elite competition. How would you respond to that? Yeah, no, I mean, it was a really interesting discussion. It's probably, um, you know, we're very much in that, looking ahead to Tokyo. So I'm talking with the BOA about, because actually there's quite a few of our established stars now who are going to be parents and yeah. now as well, and they're going yeah. to be away from home for a long period of time. So trying to make sure that the family supported the family unit supported but at the same time there's no compromise in the elite environment so getting those balances right is something mm. we're we're vigilant on and expectations are changing all the time about what's appropriate and what isn't so i hope we've got it about right we don't want to go too far one way or too far the other because this is a very big call particularly when you've got big names involved and it's, it reminds me of some of the football tournaments you know do you let the wags in or do you not let the wags in i think mm. it, i think so i think i mean without wishing to not football as a general rule most of the olympians and paralympians i've mm. worked on have got an astonishing work ethic that actually can put some professional sports to shame but i think often now things happen i mean if you if you look at people's programs tom's in particular he's got one event at the beginning of the games another later on he's got a big bit of time in the middle you know all sorts of things can go on so trying to create an environment where he can feel supported and he's got access and other all of them got access to the support they need but at the same time are able to focus rigorously mm. on their performance because when they get on that diving platform or jump into that pool you know there's no nobody at the end says well actually you missed the medal and you know um Oh, it was nice, though. He spent a bit of time with his family. Nobody says that. No, no, so sure. getting that balance right is really important. I love that you know his schedule already. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. We're supported by Saxton Bamfile, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. Find out more about their services at saxbam.com. I hope you've enjoyed our best bits so far. You can still dive into full-length interviews with any of these leaders in the episodes carried on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us. There isn't long to wait for more guests sharing their stories of how they learnt to lead. A new series of Leading with James Ashton is coming in 2020.